0: Listening to Fika with Vicki on United Public Radio, one oh seven point seven and one
1: oh five point three from New Orleans.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fika the first start at the start of Fika's first year I asked for witches and fairies and witches and fairies came and I'm so grateful to them and I feel like our time together has just begun but this year as I looked at book suggestions I started thinking druids werewolves and we never really got into storytelling like I wanted to and then there was Robin (laughs) Robin is the founding member of the Druid group Clan Ogma, a storyteller and lecturer, has been seen on documentaries, has been heard often on BBC Suffolk Radio, written for pagan magazines, and even has some crime fiction out there. He has also won the title Chief Bard of the Fens, And... He has written The Magic of Wolves. Filled to the brim with wolf lore and facts, I loved it. Not only did I come away with some new information, thoughts, and ideas, but I also laughed. Because Robin adds these little side remarks, rants, and pop references that left me anticipating more. Definitely someone I wanted to invite to Fika. So thanks for the laughter, the lore, and your obvious love of our canine companions. It's contagious, Robin, and welcome to Fika. Thank you very much. So as we always do, um, I'm going to ask you to tell the audience a little bit about The Magic of Wolves so that they have an idea of what we're talking about.
0: Uh, Certainly. It's um, just out a couple of days ago on the shelves. Uh, the remit by my publisher was that he wanted to create a series of books with the working title of The Magic of, and then cats, snakes, horses, etc., etc., etc. Each author would take a different animal and present the folklore, the mythology, the magical traditions associated. And as a lifelong lupophile, which is not some weird sexual practice if anyone's wondering, it's a, a wolf obsessive lupophilia, love of wolves. Um, it seemed perfectly Natural for me to offer to write specifically on wolves. Um, there was a, a word limit of 60,000 words, which for any budding students out there might sound nightmarishly long. But when you've got so much information out there to cover, you end up realizing you've got to leave quite sizable chunks out because you simply can't squeeze everything in in 60,000 words. So as a, a European, it seemed natural to start with Europe and looking at various European cu- cultures. So there are chapters on Nordic w- wolf law, on um, the various Celtic regions, on the Slavic and Baltic regions, Greece, Rome, etc. cetera. Um, I had intended to keep it to Europe, but madness got the better of me and I started <laughs> to stray outside. So I ended up finding myself in Egypt, in India, in China, in Japan. I, I gave great thought to the issue of North America, but I was so yes. close to 60,000 words already that I thought whatever I can say will be such a small chapter, it will be almost embarrassing, and that it needs an entire book just on North American law, let alone any of the other stuff I'd already covered. So th- there is nothing directly about a few passing references, but nothing directly about the North American. Um, understanding of wolves, I'm leaving that possibly to a sequel or to some other author who gets there first and writes it before I write it.
2: <laughs> well, I think you did a good job of you. of you know sorting through <clears throat> and finding the most relevant things to what you wanted to say. Um, and yeah, I thought it. I thought it was great. It was not like overly sc- scholarly which i do not condemn scholarly books but if you're just a regular person out there wanting to find information it is as always with these books fantastic um for a start and even into medium ground i think and then there's all those references for you to find at the back of the book so we know that you have done your work robin <laughs> and are just guessing
0: um, it's yes coming from an academic background it is very tempting to drown everything in a mountain of references which as you say can be very alienating for a lot of readers but i'd like to include enough information about where understandings and, and law have come from so that unlike some books where you never can quite tell the difference between what the author has dreamt up in the bath last week um, and <laughs> a, a, a more traditional source of information readers will that i'm not just making stuff up i have sourced it well, and if that, they want to delve more in then the as you say the sources are there so they can then follow that up themselves if they want to go deeper
2: that's the thing when you're dealing with lore right it's just, <laughs> because some people will say well it's just stories so it doesn't matter what you do with them they will okay. grow and change but when you're writing about them you want the historic story you want Absolutely. What it, 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 it was, so yeah, it you, you need to find the author that works for what you want, I think, in, oh, in, I've in
0: been been different ways. Tempted, um, for some years to write a book on the ethics of storytelling, but I'm I suspect there's only about three people in the entire world that would want to read it in the first place. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, but, but I, I think that I think that would be wonderful, make it four. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would, especially in the modern, I'm going to say climate. um, There is so much that has changed over the years that it just leaves people. I find that the most sensitive people and and the writers in that get sometimes confused. So it could not only carry over in storytelling, it could carry over into writing as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, And there's sort of overlaps into things like sociological and psychological research and all sorts of related issues. But an example of the kind of ethical ambiguity, um, there's this wonderful little story from Scotland of a creature called the wolver, which is said to live in the outer Hebrides in the the sort of very, very, very far north of Scotland and is a human-shaped but with a wolf head. And the account says it, it loves to fish. And sometimes when it catches more fish than it can eat, it goes and leaves surplus fish on the windowsills of hard pressed crofters who are struggling to make ends meet. So it's a very charitable kind of social worker type of uh, uh, werewolf, which as a story is wonderfully whimsical and enchanting. But the research suggests that a Victorian journalist, a lady named Jessie Saxby, had completely misinterpreted a, a, a local place name and thought a certain word meant wolf when in fact it doesn't, it means a sort of fairy elf. And then she elaborated on why this place name might've come into existence and effectively created the story of the wolver out of thin air. And whilst it's a wonderful story, it's the kind of story that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And a lot of people think it is hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. when it, It's quite recent. Um, it is what we these days refer to as fake law rather than folklore. Um, Not that she was intentionally faking it. I'm sure she just had No,
2: and it's a lovely story. It it is, but it is a story. It's not folklore. Yes. And And, and
0: that does get problematic when you're not only from a research angle and, and so forth, but if somebody is rushing off to the outer Hebrides to try and commune with the spirit of the wolver, they're likely to find a resounding silence
1: yeah, unless no. you
0: subscribe to the teachings of chaos magic. And the idea that if enough people believe in something, it generates an eidolon, uh, an entity created from the, like, uh, was sometimes referred to as an egregore, uh, an entity created through sheer belief. So there could be a, a wolver popping into existence purely because people believe in wolvers. Although I, I suspect that's stretching plausibility somewhat. Um but, th- th- but it, the repercussions. It,
2: but it is something to think about. Um, yeah, you know, the the ultimate case could be <laughs>
1: that this <laughs> should
2: happen. Um, so yeah, no, I think that would I I need to make two calls to your publisher. <laughs> 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 let him write this book okay no um <laughs> but I I think I think it's I think it's a great idea it would work for writers as well it would work because I mean that's what one of the things we're here to do is to figure out the origins of of story I mean we know that it grows and we know that everything has kind of been done before we're just doing it with our own voices but you know how to do that respectful yeah. to the story and the people that um, work with that story. So, absolutely. Yeah. So that's it. So, um, oh, forget the question sheet. So yeah, <laughs> you stated you have this love of 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 wolves, and I think. People would love to hear um, why that is, what brought you to that. Is that okay if I... Oh,
0: certainly. I suspect you might benefit from the presence of a psychoanalyst to explain that when it's been with me so long. Um, I I can't pinpoint precisely when I became fascinated by wolves, but certainly it's a childhood thing. Um, For anyone unfamiliar, the the part of Britain I grew up in, there haven't been wolves there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, So it's not because I was you know, bumped into a wolf in the woods when I was at a formative age or anything quite like that. It's it's not something that was inspired by anything environmental that happened. I could possibly put it down to watching far too many Dracula films as a young child. Um, there's There's a wonderful line, not only in the book, but in the films as well, where Dracula is in the castle and that the wolves are howling in the woods, and he says, "What, vods sweet musics I make the children of the night," with Bela Lugosi doing his densest attempt at an accent, yeah, trying to speak English. He, he wasn't terribly fluent as a, in fluent rather as in English as a young actor. He became fluent later. Uh, so maybe, maybe it was that I was a great lover of Universal Pictures and Hammer horror films, which is a British horror studio back in the day, uh, as a a youngster. So maybe it's watching one too many werewolf films. Who can say? (laughs) But it's persisted for an entire lifetime.
2: Well, I I mean, for television, we spend a lot of time with television, and it influences us a lot. So if it influences us in a positive way, I say go for it, you oh. know, and we all loved those monsters Sunday afternoon movies and just, <laughs> you know, that that was that was was the thing. And which brings us here today. So because um, people want to know, where did those werewolves come from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um... And you have a lot of. a lot of information on that. We can't possibly go into um, all of the information and people should buy the book. So we're not going to give them all of the information. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say, but we definitely have a love-hate relationship, many of us, um, with canines. We absolutely love our dogs, but Many people, wolves, not so much. And can you tell us a little bit about why that is?
0: Absolutely. Uh, A lot of it, of course, is competition for food. Um, If we go imagine ourselves living hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the distant past, um, as perhaps sheep farmers or goat farmers or whatever um, livestock we were looking after, there is a lot of competition. There are all sorts of other animals in the world that quite like eating the same things that we like eating. Um, crops included as well as um, livestock so we tend to resent anything that's a predator upon our crops especially in a a period of history where the state was much smaller and relatively weak and if your crops didn't come in there was no social security there was no benefits you, you sort of starved unless you had relatives you could go and prevail upon or the local priest was feeling especially generous and was willing to to help you out somewhere along the way. So all forms of of rival predator have been demonized at some point over the course of history, but probably uh, the wolf is the most demonized over the course of time. And certainly wolves will snatch a sheep They'll they'll snatch a goat, they'll snatch various other forms of human livestock, uh, particularly in periods of time where their normal wild prey is perhaps depleted. Very harsh winters, um, animals migrate to other areas, there may be less and less for the wolf to eat up a mountain or, or in the deep forests, so it gets closer and closer to human habitation, and will find whatever it can carry off to devour, Uh, I think that is fundamentally the cause of a lot of the hostility towards wolves and remains so. So there's projects around the world today to reintroduce wolves to areas where their numbers have either been wiped out completely or at least severely depleted. And the the commonest form of resistance to the reintroduction of wolves are the concerns of farmers, that they will lose their animals. Perfectly understandable. Um, Sometimes they've been offered compensation Uh, and that becomes a way of negotiating. Um, There's also plenty of evidence that wolves have a massive benefit for the landscape. So in Yellowstone Park, um, wolves were reintroduced to a particular area and they totally transformed the landscape. Some of it by predating upon deer who had been deforesting the area by eating all the young saplings. They had impacts on on the flowing of rivers and the directions we just went in, beneficial impacts things that the people reintroducing the wolves have not predicted would happen. So there are lots of reasons for bringing wolves into areas, but clearly people worrying that they are going to lose their source of income is a major one. You also have people worry that their children will be snatched up by a wolf and devoured, um, which is not well evidenced, I have to say. Very little evidence from Europe of any Reliable and documented attacks by wolves on human beings.
2: I I know that we've gone to lectures at Algonquin Park, which is sort of known that we used to we would go on holidays, and and they said the same thing that there was very few. um, You know, he could think of one or two. At which point, my child argued, "No, this isn't Little Red Riding Hood." Okay. As he was very much into um, <laughs> wolves and coyotes and things at the time. Uh, but but it is, we th- seem to think, you know, bunnies, deer, lovely, um, wolves, big bad. And th- the deer do mess with the landscape. Like they destroy everything. And that's the balance of nature, right? You need to have the wolves to balance that out.
0: Absolutely. In Japan which I didn't know at all until I I did the research for the book, Um, there was a native Japanese wolf, which was driven to extinction, having been revered within Shintoism, the the traditional religion of Japan. Um, Arguably as a result of Westernization and and incoming changing values and standards, some of it to do with um, Catholic missionaries, some of it to do with the influence of America in Japan, moves were made to eradicate the wolf and succeeded relatively recently in the grand scale of human history. A knock-on consequence of getting rid of wolves was um, an impact on farmers. So not uh, going from worrying about their livestock, agrarian farmers with crops found that way more pigs, way more deer were coming in and eating all of their crop because they were no longer being kept in check.
2: Right, right. wolf
0: population. Well, right. What's gained by one type of farmer is lost by another type of farmer, from you know animal farm animal husbandry to crop um, husbandry. D-
2: destruction. Yeah. No. No. It's it's funny because um, the predators, the they, we think of predators, the hunters, but we don't think of in that same case the deer would eat up. I mean that they didn't see that happening. So you know the Absolutely. wolves were, were hurting the deer away they're they're yes. they're clever the um, and there's also you wrote quite a bit about which i agreed with so i'm bringing it up <laughs> about how the wolf sort of symbolizes our wild nature and that was to be suppressed under you know i mean it still symbolizes freedom and the howling and and the whole thing
0: yes uh- we, we could go off on mad tangents with various anthropological and psychological arguments. Well, I try not to, because it gets a bit dry. But there is the the notion found within um, fairy tales, within um, Christianity, within Islam, various other traditions, that the wolf is seen as this, this wild beast. And I, I can easily imagine, uh, again, an earlier period of history, you're going about your business and suddenly this howling, comes in the night and it must set people's I mean, to me it sounds beautiful but I can imagine for a lot of people it wouldn't be beautiful at all it would be quite frightening quite worrying and they'd start to think oh my, my um, animals gonna be eaten and my children gonna be eaten it would become a, a source of fear and panic but that's that howling uh, you don't have to be Freud to understand that we are fundamentally wild animals as much as we might consider ourselves civilized, as much as we might consider ourselves somehow above the animal kingdom. When it boils down to it, we are part.
2: Yes, yes.
0: And we are, as human history shows again and again and again, we are as capable of ruthlessness, of violence, of destructiveness towards each other, towards anything that moves as any wolf, as any bear, as any eagle is capable of violence. And there is the sense in which in a lot of poetry, a lot of storytelling, the cry of the wolf is not just a beast out there. It's the beast in here. And the person who fears their own wild side, who has been taught to fear it, taught that it is a dangerous, dark thing that has to be bottled up and repressed and shoved down as deep as deep can go. That howling is, is the scratching at the door.
1: It's frightening.
2: It's the um, temptation. It's absolutely. it's the and I think if you're in a cabin or in a trailer, you know, in, in a more civilized part of a, a park, um, it is beautiful. But when I'm out when long, long time ago, many years ago, when I was in a tent on the back trails, it was a little frightening. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think circumstance <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
2: Yes. <laughs> leads to that. But if you're feeling safe and secure, there is nothing more beautiful sure, than them sure. talking back to each other. So, um, yeah. So I say be less afraid of the wolf and embrace your own. And yes. Then, then, um, yeah. Absolutely.
0: There, there is that need we all have, I think, to come to terms with our, what Jung would call the shadow side, our, our dark side what we are prepared to do uh, and anyone who has ever perhaps found themselves as a, a victim of somebody else's violence whether that's being mugged in the street or a domestic situation or a war situation whatever it might be people who normally are quite kind quite calm quite placid quite well behaved if their life is up against it if their children are threatened become capable of very extreme violence in self-defense or in protection of their children and their loved ones. There is that wild beast within us, the hunter, the killer, the the, the, the power to attack back. And until we come to terms with it and find a place for it, rather than bottle it up and pretend it's not there and, and hide it in the dark, then we are at risk, I think. Uh, and, and the people who explode into fits of violence, especially when they're drunk or, or high as a kite on some substance, are people who have never learned to regulate that part of themselves. So it explodes out when their inhibitions are lowered because they've, they've never achieved some, some sort of semblance of balance and self-awareness and, and capacity to regulate their own inner beast, which is maybe where the, fact, the werewolves as a metaphor, as a poetic image, something that is a man or indeed a woman by day and a snarling savage beast by night. There are some people who take those stories very overtly literally that there are such creatures in the world but we don't have to go quite down that route to accept there are plenty of people who seem one thing by day when you meet them in a public place but every now and then something kicks in and you would not want to meet them in a dark alleyway
2: no no and and that is just natural I mean that I mean I remember a, a couple of years ago well probably 20 years ago um <laughs> seems like a couple now there was a game out scruples where it asked you what would you do in these situations mm. and I would answer honestly and people would say no not you Vicky you wouldn't do that and I'm like I'm sorry. They've been hurting a lot of people with their control. So they must go. (laughs) That's it. I was on this. But yeah, no, it is. And, and I think it's, it's necessary if someone's harming, going to harm your children or whatever to, to step in the way. So I am not, I would never judge anybody on that aspect and people shouldn't, but we do once again have the idea that we must be like the deer and, Yes. That can cause a lot of trouble too.
0: Yeah,
2: because as you said, once when, when you do cross that line, you don't know what to do with yourself, and
0: we're not very good at helping people who do. I mean, so, I'm not talking about abusers, but people. That no, no, them. no. We're not good at helping them to reintegrate. Um, it, it's a problem the armed forces all around the world, I think, have extensively of people who have gone off as soldiers or sailors or, or what have you, and. Killed in war and, and, and drop bombs and seen terrible things happen. And then they um, leave the forces and they go back to civilian life. There's very little effective support for them to reintegrate.
2: No, especially in the modern world, because there's no waiting to cross the boat or whatever to get back home or walk to um, whatever village that you're working with um, living in. They can be back to their family and having supper like that afternoon and that like somebody's gotta well we talk about you talk about that in the book as another idea of what people might think were werewolves was the idea of people because whenever i hear names like from around where you live i think of um the last kingdom or or (laughs) shows and you watch that and you're like oh my gosh like people are losing children they're losing loved ones like those battles with those big axes are completely brutal and I look at these historical things and think how did they survive emotionally like they had to completely cut off but you talk about people who like just run apparently Merlin was supposed to have done that just run from that battle and live in the woods
0: Yes, there's several um, you've mentioned, this, one of the stories about Merlin um, from Welsh is after the Battle of Ardareth, which was in the late 500s um, he sees many of his friends he's, he's a liege lord and all sorts of other people slaughtered um, he's um, not, not a warrior himself, but he is involved in the battle uh, and he sees so much carnage that he goes mad at the end of the battle and runs off to the woods it, these days we'd obviously talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, but Back then, they just thought of people going mad in a rather generic way. And he lives for quite some years in the woods as a wild man, as a hermit. And his only companions are the animals. So he's got a, a, a pig and a, a wolf and a deer and so on. Eventually, he is brought back to human civilization by relatives who go out to try and lure him back in. Which is a whole story in and of itself. Um, there's an Irish tale of Misch. Who is the the princess? A princess, daughter of uh, the king of the world. Um, there's a, a massive battle, with a ridiculous number of deaths by the end of the battle, including the death of her father. Uh, and, and she sees her father's corpse, the head severed, and the sight of it, and the blood, and the guts, and the flies. And- <coughs> The crows, carrying crows, picking at the corpses, and the rest of it is so overwhelming. She again, she goes insane, and she runs up the mountain, and no one can find her. Um, somehow, she lives for three hundred years. The story just kind of glosses over the, the sort of <laughs> practicalities of that. She just does, um, and she becomes a werewolf in the mountain. She gets hairy and claws and fangs, and lives off whatever animals she can catch and rip apart with her teeth. Until eventually, three hundred years later, a, a bard, a musician, comes along and um, seduces her with music, and then seduces her in the more usual manner. Um, and that helps her to reintegrate and find herself again. She becomes, ceases to be a werewolf and becomes a woman again, and they go back down the mountain and rejoin society as it is 300 years later. Um, there, there, there's a number of other stories about figures who are driven to the edge, by warfare they don't always become werewolves but they, they they suffer because of what they're seeing which it would have been a very very common experience the if today the current age and obviously there's wars going on all around the world you think of today as a very violent age go back into the past look at this. <clears throat>
2: I I refuse to watch any documentary that involves axes and children on the historic if it has I I see axes and children and I'm out of there. But (laughs) that's just how I do. But but the idea that um, that that is what people would do is quite possible because i just want out of here and then having lived in the wilderness for many many years not 600 or 300 or whatever it is um to to live in in the wilderness for that long you would end up wearing furs you would end up possibly you're not talking to anyone speaking a little gibberish um and so people might believe that that is a werewolf
0: oh yes unkempt appearance getting quite un, untrimmed fingernails and all the rest of it. They <laughs> yes. might well look quite, quite mad, quite primal, primal by the end of it. So certainly possible that they could have been viewed in that way. Um, it's, it's interesting. I'm reminded of a um, project by the American Army within the last couple of years where um, some therapists have been using Greek mythology and Greek storytelling to help soldiers cope with what they've seen after the battle, obviously, they're not talking about it and the bombs flying overhead, but once the battles are won and the soldiers are back to base, what is there to help them? And so some um, people within the American forces have been using Greek myth and telling stories and getting soldiers to discuss the symbolism of the stories and what they mean and relate it to their own life. So that idea of storytelling as a, a therapeutic process. Um, particularly mythic storytelling which which kind of catches something very primal but also has the benefit of distance in that you can begin the conversation by talking about them well no. and then
2: bring it back to you yes. which is, is which is the great thing because um even in regular day-to-day life you're not gossiping about the neighbors you're not saying that guy did that you're able to have an open discussion with no sides no no boundaries for feelings you're talking about them and Indeed. yeah no it's absolutely important to i'm glad to hear that that's that's a good i like that robin <laughs> <laughs> I like that that somebody's using it in that way. And um, um, look, um, now, of all the stories in the book, um, people look at things. There's always, you know, I like to say the moral of the story, but the thought behind the story. Yes. As you were researching this, was there one story that reached out to you and said, you know, Robin, this is it. This is your story. <laughs> not trying to get, not in a psychoanalyst kind of way, but something you just... That, that
0: tickled you, Robert. Um, there is a snippet of a story that um, appeals to me a great deal. Um, from And it's repeated in various different forms from Slavic and some Baltic sources. Um, so it kind of crops up in different versions in Latvia and Lithuania and Poland and um, related countries in the area. Um, one version of the story, it's referred to as the Lejevik. Um, which translates as the wolf herder. Uh, So obviously we're used to shepherds herding sheep and um, Celtic sources frequently refer to swine herders who would look after the the pigs and and take them around the forest and look after them. So here we have uh, the wolf herder, who is uh, a very strange man. (laughs) And he always seems to be a man. That I couldn't find any mention of female wolf herders uh, who would live with the wolves. Now, obviously, the, the significant difference with, between that and a shepherd or a swineherd is that those are domesticated livestock. Uh, and so there is a benefit to the village of, of somebody looking after the sheep, looking after the, the pigs, the cows, etc. cetera. There's no obvious benefit to the village of looking after the wolves. They're not eating the wolves. They're not milking the wolves. They're not you know, kind of gaining any agricultural benefit from the wolves. But it is the job of the wolf herder to do that. And a a negotiation takes place with the wolf herder acting as the sort of go-between with humanity on one side and the wolf packs on the other so that um, arrangements are made whereby the the wolf pack gains some food, but they're not predating upon the livestock of the village. So that they, they kind of compromise. And that's part of the reason why the idea, not only just the kind of visual image of this mad old guy in the woods, wandering around covered in wolf skins and looking after the wolves, which I think sounds quite a nice career move, to be honest. I Um, know, I was just thinking, I (laughs) think that's a
2: heartwarming picture.
0: (laughs) 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 But the fact that he's negotiating, that they're not just saying, kill the wolves, they're saying the wolves have a right to live. And it's this guy's job to act as the, the diplomatic bridge to because he can speak the language of wolves and sometimes it's done through music in some versions of the story. He's got the sort of magic musical instruments that help him to to tame, again, like the Irish stories, to tame the savage beast. Um, And and there is an an understanding there which echoes to a story from North America, um, which in one version I have seen attributed to the Ojibwe. There may be other versions where it's attributed to other different nations. Um, uh, and the, it's, the story is described as "Speaks for Wolf" as the, the title of the story. That um, there is a, a tribe in North America, a nation, hundreds of years ago, who would migrate between the summer hunting grounds and the winter hunting grounds. And one day they do the migration and they arrive in the place they normally go to, and it's flooded, so they can't can't go there, and they have to find somewhere else. So they, they wander on for a few miles, and they find a woods, and they think, oh, this will do, and they're going pitch, pitch camp. And they go hunting in the woods, and they catch a deer and, and rabbits and whatever else they catch, hang the meat up. And every night, something comes into the camp and steals the meat. And so they're going hungry, and it's quite frustrating and quite annoying. And eventually, they set some one of their warriors to, to keep watch in the night, and he sees wolves come into the camp and run off with the meat. So they find their best hunter and they say to him, we want you to follow the wolves, not to kill them, but to negotiate with them, find out why they're nicking our meat. And so off he goes into the woods and eventually he finds the wolf lair and he converses with the wolves and they have a very polite conversation and he says to them, why are you stealing our meat? And they say to him, well, why are you stealing our meat? This is our territory mm-hmm. you lot come in here nickel the deer <laughs> that's that's our deer we eat them and so they realize that the the humans have intruded on the wolf domain but the the hunter explains you know, our normal grounds are flooded we've got to eat something we've got to go somewhere and so a deal is struck between some meat for the wolves some meat for the humans everyone's happy and he is renamed, as is often traditionally in many cultures, where someone has a, a kind of a, a very singular experience and then earns a new name as a result of that experience. He is renamed Speaks for Wolves. And the way the story is used, apparently, is quite popular in, in dreary things like corporate training these days, which is a bit, bit of a come down for a story, but never mind. Um, the idea that if you have a project, you're going to do something, but well, you you tend to get very caught up in it, and you think, "Oh, this would be great for us," and that'll be good for us, and that'll be good for us. You very rarely think about the impact it's going to have on anyone else, because you're so caught up in your own needs.
1: Right, and right. So
0: the idea is that companies, charities, com- communities should have someone who is appointed, whose job it is to sit there and think, who else is going to be impacted by this? Will they and- appreciate what we're doing, or will? The- <laughs> shortchanged or you know, exploited, whatever, um, whether it's wolves or you know, whoever else Thailand.
2: Well, no, I, I did do a talk with a gentleman about poverty, and I can't remember what it was called, like, to actually speak to the people because you might say, oh, this is a lovely building or whatever, but it takes them away from some other need or what, you know, what they really need. And you don't – you can't see that. You don't know that unless you're living that experience. So –
0: Absolutely. Yes. And then, I can find that idea because it, it marries in with the idea of the wolf herder from yeah. Lithuania and Poland and so on, of someone who is tasked with thinking of the needs of another. And in this case, it's not just the looking after the sheep that we intend to fleece and eat and, and, and what have you. It's also the needs of beings that are of no direct financial benefit to the people that have a right to exist. And it, it's that acknowledgement of the right to exist that I find quite vital, because we're still struggling with that one with a lot of species, where we just go, oh, we got, we, they're horrible, let's kill them all. Uh, and sometimes we do it to other human beings, obviously. Just, well, just yeah, right
2: <laughs> we <laughs> could, we could, we could go on. um Okay, this time is going too fast, Robin. I want to get. Heart song too you're going to need to come back they do you have no say in this okay so i think what people would be interested in um about the wolves is i didn't even i guess i sort of knew in the back of my head but they actually had much like the witch trials they had werewolf trials were quite a common thing
0: absolutely um some parts of the the world werewolf trials were more common than witch
2: trials which Mm -hmm. is like not Serbia and, and those those places. Because, I mean, a lot of those stories, the vampires and that, came from the Slavic people most strongly, didn't they?
0: Oh, very heavily associated, yes.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Although vampirism is an almost universal concept, but certainly a lot of what we're familiar with in the cinema has been lifted wholesale from central and eastern Europe. Yeah, World.
2: no, I'm not just saying that because of the bad accents. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I have, I have, um, I had a gentleman from Serbia who brought me a magazine because I was interested in this kind of thing and it talked about um, how it was established there and stuff. So, so um, I just don't go by the movies. I go a lot by the movies, but (laughs) I do other stuff too, Robin. (laughs) <laughs> so would people accuse people much as the same in the witch trials if they wanted to get their land and things like that? Um, there,
0: there's ongoing debates about um, the, the better recorded trials. Obviously, some some trials we know they happen, but we don't really know the, the details. The detail. But there are other trials which the records still exist. So there, there's things to be analyzed. Um, it, it, it's quite a fascinating area. It's... Um, more common for men to be accused of werewolf fury than for women. Whereas obviously with witch trials, it was more common the other way around. Although there are some exceptions in certain Scandinavian countries, way more men were accused of being witches than women. So there is regional variation in that one. But a lot of the people put on trial for being werewolves were more commonly men than women. Um, some of it may have been linked to the same kind of financial issues that were driving the witch trials that either somebody was quite well off and somebody else thought, well, when they're dead...
2: Yeah, (laughs) um, no, no.
0: (laughs) And so forth. But also at the other end of the financial scale, um, very poor people were often... Always. Because they were a drain on the local parish coffers and rather than keep on paying money to look after the poor, you're just going to bump them off (laughs) and, and deal with it that way, which is all a bit grim and I'm surprised some modern politicians haven't had a crack at that one, but that's another story. Um, but there are some fascinating accounts. Um, Livonia, which doesn't exist as a country anymore, but was sort of, um, part of it was in, was um, controlled by Sweden and uh, uh, other parts by other countries. Um, there was a very elderly man called um, Tis, who came from there. And the trial accounts still exist. Uh, he was hauled into court for, for other reasons. And he just blurted out, this story about being a werewolf um, which possibly a lot of the locals may have been familiar with but was not familiar to the judges of the trial
2: right right it was a common story in the area but not knowing out of it
0: absolutely Um, so he he, uh, and it's quite interesting I mean possibly he was I mean he was 80 odd so possibly he might have been a little eccentric if not maybe Borderline dementia, Alzheimer's, something like that, which could have led to, to sort of um, ill-considered outbursts. When you're on trial, you don't normally be so torturals. forthcoming with information. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: Absolutely, but he what he describes is quite fascinating because it's not simply the bog standard story that occurs in so many other werewolf trials where somebody says, oh, I met the devil. They turned me into a werewolf and I've killed 36 people. It was lovely, which tends to be the recurrent theme of most most werewolf trials is someone who is quite possibly a serial killer, who's just Mm -hmm. bumped off people left, right, and center. Um, In this case with with old um, Tease, he says that he is a member of a cult of benevolent werewolves. And they fight against these evil witches and the evil witches try to cause mayhem to the crops and the cattle and all sorts of other things. And the werewolves, who he describes as being the hounds of God, descend into hell to battle the witches. And it's a very similar idea to a story told in Italian witch trials of the Benendanti and the Malandanti, the good walkers and the bad walkers, where you've got two rival, a bit like Harry Potter, two rival gangs of, of wizards, which is fighting each other, the goodies and the baddies. And the goodies are trying to protect the community from the the Mm -hmm. ill-intended magic of the the bad guys. Uh, So he, he spills out this story, and the court listened to him, and I imagine I can imagine there would have been a state of shock <laughs> to sort of hear this, this convoluted tale of what sounds to, to me like astral projection or, or shamanic trance work, something like that. Was he in a, an altered state of consciousness as his spirit was descending into the bowels of the underworld to have all of these amazing visionary experiences? I mean, I suppose it's possible he was just delusional, making it up as he went along, but it's a very, very vivid account to just dismiss as some old man who was a bit cracked. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All those wonderful words. <laughs> and <then> you just with <laughs> <put> that. <laughs> it's a little, but yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot to, to ask yourself about, about these stories. And taking in as well that, um, a lot. There was a lot of stories in the time where people would think they saw things and everything. But you have to remember, a lot of them were close to starvation, yeah. which which yeah. causes hallucinations. The nutrition wasn't good. There's no B12 going there. Sometimes, <laughs> like they didn't sleep properly. They weren't. All of these physical things will lead to some of these journeys as well. Absolutely. Which doesn't mean that they're fake or they're whatever, but it it does have the times. I would think. Absolutely. I mean, but be, but be, between what they saw daily and and lack of nutrition, I'm su- I'm surprised we survived as a species at all. Like, just just taking us, um, keeping it. Now, okay, we have a dilemma, Robin, because it we have we have um. Oh no we still have that's right we started a little later so we still have 10 minutes okay i'm gonna jump people they're used to my jumping <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to jump because i also read bard song oh, gotcha. which 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 i which i loved um for any and so there's a couple of things okay you talk about all the poems that are in this book it is actually almost like also a poetry instruction indeed yes book and um if you get it are i'm not sure which way to, um metrical or how would yes. you, that's, metrical, that's, yes, yes. okay okay so they're all metrical and they go by a formation and even though so many people may balk at that because you don't have the artistic inspiration. It's just one of the rants, um, which I thought was very clever and, and on point um, with what humanity has done. But it does it does lead to other things in life, like forcing yourself to write according to these systems. Um, can you say like some of the positives of doing that to anyone, oh, for anyone?
0: Absolutely. So the, the book is primarily um, Celtic inspired poetry, um, themes from Irish and Welsh mythology and so forth. Although there are sections on Scandinavian and Greek and Roman and, and, and other um, poetic meters. But the the advantage, and I do accept that it is quite challenging to write in any kind of a meter Uh, because you've got to structure what you're saying and the word count and the syllables and the rhyme schemes and so forth. Um, But what it fundamentally does is focus what you want to say. Blank verse, once in every 500 blank verse poems, is good. The other 499, frankly, would make a Vogon blush, which is a science fiction reference for anyone who's not familiar with Vogon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, blank verse, um, uh, just in case anyone's unfamiliar with the term, is, is just when you you write without meter. It's just you kind of say what you want to say. The danger there is that people say too much; they they just blur. It, it, it's sort of verbal diarrhea on the page.
2: Well, which um, can happen in novel writing as well. Gosh, to be concise it's yes. important. So
0: yes, um, so the, the the need for meter helps. You, to, you you come up with an image, and you think, oh, it's it's two syllables, too many for the line. How can I say this in a slightly different way? And you have to think and you rethink and you jiggle the words around and you're you're focusing your mind a great deal. So it doesn't absolutely guarantee it's going to be good, of course, but a lot more mental effort goes into it. And I'd argue that this is akin to magic because in magic, you are focusing your mental energies to achieve. And the outcome for the poem may be to put an image in the mind of the reader.
2: Well, and i i always i always envision that as the tip of a wand because you're taking all of this energy for this poem and putting it in one little spot. At at, right. at, at at the end. So, I know. I mean, and you also <clears throat> said, it, well, it 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 leads to. Um, an easier time with meditation and and with all of these things because you're thinking in that focused kind yes. of way.
0: Absolutely, and certainly for poetry that draws upon so, religious mythological themes, if you're going to write a poem about a particular goddess or a particular god, for example, or an ancestor, whoever it may be, part of what you're doing is opening your mind. It's almost like a meditative state. You're opening your mind to that entity. To capture and, it. and
2: completely focusing on it in order to get these um, syllables in order Yeah.
0: <clears throat> it's a devotional act uh, an offering a gift a sacrifice
2: well and into um, to write that like art as a sacrifice is 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 a great thing I think because you you're truly giving of yourself so and I on the, on another mode um, more mainstream is we were um, discussing haiku one day with um author brian griner i'll give him a plug there and and (laughs) i found because i tend to get obsessive um you know you're you're looking at these structures so if it was actually we'll we'll, we'll tie in taming my inner wolf (laughs) because I would like want to say something, and so while I was running off the syllables to say it haiku, for whatever reason, I realized it really did, it really was calming. It, it took all those feelings, and I, I and you have to think about them, as you said, to get it down. So, uh, yeah, I think that kind of poetry writing really, really could lead to well, help absolutely. with a lot of disciplines.
0: I, I think it also becomes potentially therapeutic. I'm um, kind of going back to what we were saying about the Greek myth and the American soldiers, that if you are writing about an emotive issue, maybe an experience you had that was upsetting or a, a grief-inspired poem for somebody who's died or whatever, sitting down and connecting with your own emotions, just as if, as if you were connecting with a god or a goddess, if you were writing something mythological, you're trying to not just splurge those emotions on the page but you are trying to express them in a way that will be meaningful to whoever hears or reads the poem so it's really connecting with not just incoherent emotion but an emotion expressed in a way that will make sense to yourself and and sometimes
2: my emotions don't make sense even to myself (laughs) So, so yes, no. Getting a journal just for that would be, would be fabulous. I I think. So then I'm going to jump all around here. Um, like I said, they're used to it. So we talk about bard song, and you are a chief bard. What is what does that job involve, Robin?
0: Um, well, nothing anymore because I was chief bard of the Fens in 2008. So oh, a-
2: okay. I said it updated by. <laughs> well, well, well. In two thousand and eight, we'll just slash that and go back. In two thousand and eight, when you were chief bard of the Fens, what was your job, Robert?
0: <laughs> Love to to represent um, storytelling chiefly rather than poetry, um, in. in kind of bring it to people, bring it to potential audiences. We did, um, after um, the, the, the fen area is towards, for anyone familiar, is towards Cambridge. Uh, I, I live in Suffolk, which is a few miles away. Um, so we, we created a bardic throne, a bardic chair for Suffolk. And that ran for 10, 12 years uh, before we were we started to struggle after a while to find anyone willing to, to contend. Uh, and part of that was to bring to prominence poetry and storytelling. So you have the contest and audiences turn up to listen to them and you know, each performer does their bit, uh, just as I did when I was in competition for the, the 2008 throne. And then a panel of judges, partly based on audience reaction and partly based on their own artistic insights decide who's best, which, um, so you, that person then becomes the chief bar for a year and they get engaged in storytelling events and poetry events. And part of it is to bring those skills and those arts to public attention through, through public events, uh, and to help, um, deepen the, the linguistic culture of the region to, to make people, because for some people, poetry is, is boring.
2: Yeah, no, 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 no. Um, I've, <laughs> <But> <laughs> some poetry is boring just like some books are boring and if you're going out for a Saturday afternoon and you've been working hard all after all week you might want something a little more jovial
0: Indeed. Um, and um, I, I, I um, used to teach I, I teach other subjects now but I used to teach um, elements of poetry to students um, uh, and some of them were quite adverse to the idea um, but almost every single one of them loved songs.
2: Yes, yeah, um, so I was going to get
0: to one that. Of them, their <laughs> favorite songs. What's a song lyric except poetry? Exactly. So e- even those who thought, "Well, Wordsworth oh, fall asleep," would appreciate some some pop star or whoever it is their favorite musician was their favorite singer, and um, would would value lyrics. They just didn't think of lyrics as poetry. But it well was. I-
2: I think that academia Is somewhat to blame for that Because it it is taught In the most driest (laughs) Way you know it's not as you Like you're bringing in the music that Multi-sensor sensory thing It's not like this now There is a chapter um, Just kitsch, is it Called yes (laughs) In in which All my favorite things you wrote Different lyrics to teddy bears picnic Um (laughs) you did a different rendition of of the the it was the grouch um before send the
0: grouch grouch who stole mistress
2: yes 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 and and um i used to recite the grinchy (laughs) 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 words all the time it annoyed people at work so if they didn't do what i wanted that was my revenge um and and the one that really captured me was Bye Bye Mythological Ways um, to the Sound of um, American Pie. And I played a long time just, you know, um, later my husband said, oh, is that what you were doing when I was telling her <laughs> kid about it? But he never mentioned anything during my process. So, I mean, obviously he's learned over time don't bother her when she's doing strange things (laughs) but it was it was so much fun and and i think um you know as a sacrifice that is wonderful i also think if someone's having writer's block or something and they're looking for something to, to jolt them out of it that would be a very good way to do it
0: i think so um over here we call it filk i don't know if they use the same term in north america um, no. film is when you take an existing tune from somebody else's song and you change the lyrics usually to something funny or rude uh, as a bit of a joke um uh, and there is a whole filkin scene in Britain, of people who just do that all of the time with, with various different um, songs and tunes. <laughs> and that uh,
2: but you are the home of Monty Python, so <laughs> that shouldn't be surprising uh, to any of us. Um, so would you consider Weird Al a bard? Um, oh, yes, yes. I wanted um, to ask.
0: Somewhere between a bard and a jester. Um, <laughs> Were the 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 bards of ancient Wales in Ireland, or feely in Ireland rather than bards, but same general idea. um You had the upmarket ones, the, the royal court ones, who were terribly terribly serious, kind of a bit like classical composers. They'd turn up and they'd do, do their part <laughs> and they'd be really, dreadfully serious. And then you had the more kind of working class end down down the tavern, where you probably got your bawdy, rude, unrepeatable lyrics and and. Um, songs taking the pee out of whoever the local bigwigs were. Uh, probably the kind of songs you'd never sing in front of them if you wanted to keep your head attached to your neck.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, very fond of the head attached to the neck. But I read somewhere, don't even ask me why, because where? I, I need to start taking note of these things. But I, that laughter actually is a great component of creativity because when you laugh it clears everything out is like a cleansing of the brain and you're you stop thinking about anything but that laughter in the moment so so it needs to be incorporated more I think into
0: absolutely and it's got great um therapeutic in terms of of clearing the mind lifting the emotions it's very difficult to be chronically depressed when you're laughing out loud
2: Um
0: (laughs) (laughs) around that one (laughs) <laughs>
2: um, well, there's things. also the laughter of the warrior. You know, things aren't can't get any worse, and, and when they do, you just laugh. I should have been happy five minutes ago because <laughs> things were better in those good old days, um, or minutes. Yeah, no laughter. So, if someone is having a very difficult time dealing with um, the wolf inside, they should perhaps just laugh at the big bad wolf. Indeed, and yes. and 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 go on, Robin. This is this is not good. Oh, where can we find more of Robin Hearn's work? What's out there? Where should we look?
0: Um, I have a, a blog called Round the Hearn, which is a, a play on a, an old 1950s radio show, um, which is a combination of storytelling, psychology, sociology, philosophy, various other interrelated topics and storytelling and, and so forth. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel, but the details for that are on the blog. Um, so if, if people would like to listen to me wittering away, then they can find through that source. Um, and it's the, the, not. <laughs> the various books are all available. Um, there's one on Egyptian gods, one on Druidry. There's a collection of murder mysteries uh, and various other things. Um, all good bookshops and probably some quite bad bookshops can order them in. And of course there are um, online book sources owned by exceedingly rich individuals. But if you are able, I'd suggest to re- your listeners um, to go down your local bookshop and get them to order it in for you. You're supporting them, and they probably need the money rather more badly than some billionaires need the money.
2: This is <laughs> a Robin rant. <laughs> <laughs> he got a Robin ran- rant in. <laughs> <laughs> definitely um uh, robin if you ever want to come back and oh, say hi and talk more about bard songs and druids and your your mystery um, fiction um the door's always open so so it just knock it's been it's been a lovely time thank you oh, so thank much you. for you joining it. us okay you take care
0: thank you. Right. <laughs>
2: okay thanks okay fun times for sure For the rest of you, I will see you all next week. Until then, may your coffee be hot and your story sweet. Thanks for listening, everyone.